Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 350. And for 350, we had to go big, right? I've got the man, the myth, Taron Egerton as my guest this week. This was a dream come true. Me and Taron have chatted a bit on on socials. And I'm a big fan of his work, as you'll hear from this conversation. And we managed to set up, sit down chat. It was in one of the windows of... <laughs> of lockdown where we were able to get a secure and empty space and sit two meters apart to have this conversation. So we got to do it in person, which is pretty cool. But, um, it was, it was wonderful to sit down with Taryn. Um, if this is your first time tuning in previous guests that might appeal, um, we talk about Stephen Graham in this episode. He's, he's been on, uh, twice. Um, Michael Fassbender, James McAvoy, uh, Sophia Batella. I don't know who, who to list. There's so, so many good people. Mary J. Blige, Spike Lee, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling now, but just have a scroll through the back catalogue and you'll see some, some wonderful, wonderful, wonderful people. J- Joe Gilgan, um, last week's episode with Maxine Peake, Kathy Burke, Vicky McClure. Anyway, a long list of wonderful, wonderful people. And I'm delighted to add to it with Taron. Oh, I should mention we've I've had Mark Miller on, the creator of of, of Kingsman. So that's well, well worth a listen. Um, and Joe Hartley, who was who was in Eddie the Eagle, had loads of good people. I'll stop plugging. I mean, how can I and not mention my boy Garth Jennings, writer and creator and director of Sing. Basically, almost everyone that we mentioned in this, in this podcast I've had on previously. Before we get into it, I need to mention that Out of Her Mind, um, a new t- TV show written and created and starring S- Sarah Pascoe and me and Carrie Ad Lloyd and Juliet Stevenson and Aid Edmondson is out on October 20th, 10pm. T- it's every Tuesday at 10pm, so check it out. It will be on BBC Two and on iPlayer. Let's get into the podcast. This is episode 350 with the one, Taron Egerton. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. This piece of fiction is the intro to distraction. And we're rolling. Right, I'm here today with Taron Egerton. How are you, man? I'm all right, mate. I'm not bad, yeah. I'm getting by like everybody else, really. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's fine. I mean, you know, comparatively speaking, I'm, I suppose, doing well, you know, healthy. All, you know, the people in my life are healthy. It's just this kind of feeling of a bit of the joy having been taken out of the world, you know? Yeah, and, and, and the limbo of it all. Yeah, and the appropriate limbo yeah. again. I don't think we should be rushing anything. No, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really important, isn't it? But I, I, God, you know, I would like to sort of feel like things are beginning to. I mean, it does, I suppose. You know, with the kids going back to school and everything. But yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's weird. Have you been able to do any work in in this period? I mean, you know, I've I've read scripts, and you know, I've had conversations with prospective employers and. Uh, filmmakers, what have you. But um, again, everything is, in my case, I know it's beginning to change for some people, but in my case, things are still in that more, 
hypothetical phase. I, I feel like it's probably quite likely that I won't work until the new year now. I was yeah. due to start filming something in September, but it, um, it's been pushed back to the new year. Yeah. yeah. I know you're off soon, aren't you? Yeah, I'm off you're... to do some bits. But yeah. again, it's because we were, were lucky that we were shooting in Canada where they yeah. just... Just before I flew back, they'd locked, like, every flight coming in was a two-week quarantine yeah. from anywhere in the world. And they've had that from the start. So they've been really good at, uh, at yeah. locking down a bit more. And there's, like, I'm like when I go out there, I've got to have a two-week quarantine and there's, like, a tracker app on your phone and to you literally sure can't leave your really? apartment, all that kind of thing. So, so what will again, shopping gets like delivered it. to yeah, you? Yeah, all that kind of thing. There's, uh, and I'd imagine, because it's been going on for four or five months out yeah. there. I'd imagine they've got all the delivery services all on point I'm sure, by now. There's going to sure. be no panic. Yeah, so yeah. I'm relaxed about it all. But yeah, it's an interesting one. Have you been in London or have you been out in Wales? No, I was in Wales. What happened was on the 18th, I had a phone conversation with somebody I work with, an agent I work with named Jonathan Sanders. And he said, he seemed to be privy to more information than I was. I was sort of sat here with my girlfriend not knowing what was happening. Yeah. She, you know, production had shut down for her. And he said, I think if I were you, I would get out of get out of London. No one really knows what's going to happen. And I thought, oh, yeah. well, you know. I did. We packed up my van and um, we hot-footed it to Wales. Thinking, I, I sort of thought, I felt like it might be six weeks. Yeah. And we were there for nearly five months. And How was that? Do you know what I have to say? I mean, Ceredigion, which is the county I'm from, has like, I think, the second lowest number of cases in the whole of the UK. Right, don't don't quote me on that. It's certainly in the absolute lowest sort of quartile. But um, So it felt, certainly at that time where people weren't moving across the country, obviously it started to relax in July. But prior to that, it kind of felt a bit like we were in this bubble. It's, it's also a, a, a quite an older population there. Mm-hmm. So people were taking it very, very seriously, as they should. But um, it didn't, it kind of felt a bit like, I sort of equate it to, you know, it felt like we were in, the Shire and Mordor was very far away and bad things were happening. So it was, it was actually nice. Of course there was a sort of underlying level of anxiety and you're aware that people are getting really sick and dying. But selfishly speaking, I, I, I did really enjoy just kind of disappearing for a while. It was very near my family and we were able to sort of, see them a bit in the garden when the Welsh weather allowed. Um, (laughs) It doesn't always. Yeah, exactly. But you know, it was nice. Did a lot of reading and kind of just, I don't know. I think I've had such a manic few years, really, Uh, you know, my twenties really have been Mm. kind of manic. And I think I felt like as the world sort of came to a, a halt, I just found that I could sit still a bit more. Yeah. And kind of, do things that I hadn't been able to do for a while. I said I read a lot, and I and I I only say it because I haven't read for a few years. I've just found it really hard to zone in and focus. And something about find yourself rereading the same page oh, over mate, and yeah. over again because yeah. I'm not I'm not taking this in. Yeah, and then you get paranoid thinking is Instagram ruining my brain? You yeah. know, and that fear actually a while ago had led me to remove Instagram from yeah. my phone because I just scroll nonsense, you know. Yeah. And so I just keep it on my iPad and do it when I need to do it. Perfect. But yeah, I just found, for some reason, about four weeks into lockdown, I picked up a book and just really settled into it. And it just felt like having a warm bath. It was yeah. so nice. That facility just came back to me, you know? Yeah. And was it nice being back in Wales? Because you, you you grew up in Wales. Yeah. Right? You were born in Liverpool, but, but yeah. quite early moved out to... Uh, yeah, my my family, my parents are, are from Liverpool. I, I was born near Liverpool, not, mm. not Liverpool proper. Um, and my mother and father separated when I was two or three. Mm. and my mother moved to North Wales to study basically so she would have been like she was pretty amazing actually she would have been about 20, 
six, I think. And she went to get a degree and raised me on her own. And, wow. um, and she did it, got first class honours, got a good job. And that was, that was kind of the start of our life in Wales, really. And then when I was 12, I moved to Aberystwyth, which yes. is where my grandmother lived. And she'd moved from Liverpool about six years before that. So, I mean, I've, I've never felt particularly scouse, although weirdly, sometimes I do sound it if I'm drunk or angry. But, um, <laughs> I love it when those things <laughs> pop out. Yeah, but um, yeah, sorry, I went off on a tangent there. But, no, yeah, yeah. That's, that's great. And it's, it's lovely out there. I used to visit Lampeter a lot, which yeah, is just yeah, down yeah. from Aberystwyth, yeah, obviously. Absolutely, and yeah. What were you doing there? Oh, my brother was at university at Lampeter, okay. and he had a little cottage in the middle of nowhere. Gorgeous, though. And it was just amazing. Yeah. The first few times I went, it was when he was there, and then it became a thing that whenever he came back to Essex, I'd go and just have his cottage to have yeah. that that isolation. Because, again, yeah. if you've grown up in cities, you don't have that. Again, no. it's what... Obviously, it goes without saying that this pandemic is horrific. But if you're trying to find the positives, I think it is when it's making people who don't normally pause take a moment to pause and take a breath and yeah. take a, a look over things. I think we've built a society and the entertainment industry at the peak of that where we're told that if we stop for a, se- a second that we're, l- we're lazy yeah, or, yeah. We're, or we're skiving off or whatever else. And yeah. It shouldn't be that. Society yeah, no, used absolutely. to be built around leisure being really important, work being important too. But yeah. for years we were pushing towards a three-day week or a four-day week. And that was the goal of a positive society that we have to work l- less. Whereas now I've had it uh, myself for years. I've always been that I need to be constantly working. Yeah. Otherwise... I'm throwing away opportunities. I'm, I'm I'm not being grateful for the opportunities I've had. But again, I think this period, again, yeah, particularly in an industry that doesn't allow you to pause, you always feel if you miss a job, then to- you're totally. you're throwing you, everyone will forget about you. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I yeah, I really really felt that. I felt a change in me, and of course, I you know, of course, I don't um, wish to sort of belittle the severity of yeah. what's happened i'm just mean very selfishly speaking i found it to be quite cathartic and um i don't know it did something to me that i think needed to happen it felt like a slight reset button and i think other people have experienced well you're saying yeah. that you, you, yeah. you recognized a bit of that yourself completely so so what was the route to acting from you know single parent upbringing in in yeah. north wales or then with you know grandparents and that in Aberystwyth and that yeah. kind of area it's not somewhere that looks like it's got obvious options, but no. there has always been amazing actors from those areas, from those parts of the world. So there will be people to look up to and see it as a thing. But. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I was in North Wales on Anglesey, it, it didn't, it wasn't a, a remotely a consideration in my life. The way that I socialised with my so that's friends. Li- that's literally off on an island, right? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah, village, with the village with the longest name. It's, um, yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. Uh, Please spare me from having to do it again. Um, but um, yes, so I grew up there and had an incredible set of friends um, and was a very happy kid. But, you know, what we did was play football every day. And to be honest, I enjoyed it. But there was all, I always sort of felt a bit like I was going along with what everybody else wanted. And yeah. it wasn't really, it didn't set my soul on fire. What I did do privately was I did, a, did like a lot of very solitary creative stuff. So I was... Very, very into drawing, and I was very into. Right. I remember when I was maybe about nine, there was a little shop in a nearby town called Bangor, and they sold these little squares of clay, uh, different colours, and you could piece them together and then fire them in an ordinary oven, acting oh, like wow. a kiln. And that just, like, it completely blew my mind, really. So I ended up making 
I mean, they're still in a box somewhere in my my mum's attic and certain family members have got them in little cabinets or whatever. And that's what I spent my time doing was making these little figurines. I was very, very into animation, very into, you know, like Aardman and Pixar. And and that's what I I did really. And then we moved to Aberystwyth when I was 12 and I had three, uh, about three years of a really rubbish time because I just struggled to adapt and make friends. and, And so those kind of, little private creative pursuits continued but you know I was I was sort of I think I was probably quite good when I was 12 and then my sort of skill level never really developed beyond that yeah, yeah. Um, and then when I was 15 <laughs> this looks like it was it was made by a 15 year old and then exactly, when you're 18 exactly. this still looks, looks like, like made by a 15 year old so uh, and then when I was 15 Aberystwyth is very lucky very lucky to have an incredible facility which is run by the university called the Aberystwyth Art Centre. I, all of a sudden when I was 15, I just made a couple of friends. There were people who'd sort of vaguely been around and um, and I, start, I decided to join the local youth theatre because it's what they did. Um, and I was, it was sort of apropos of nothing. I'd always been creative. I suppose I'd always had an interest in drawing and creating characters, mm. but I'd never thought, you know, now I'm going to be those characters. Yeah. And I joined youth theatre really because it seemed like a way of fortifying burgeoning friendships I, I mean initially it was the source of a lot of anxiety and the first I've told the story a lot but I'll very briefly say it again that the, first, the first play I did was A Midsummer Night's Dream and I played Flute who's one of the mechanicals and he's a character has to um, dress up as a woman yeah. N- now I would um, relish that appropriation of the female form or not I would absolutely I would enjoy that but yeah. at that age I, um, I it was it caused me a lot of anxiety right and I I remember they made me a sort of there was a lady named Doriel Martin who did all the costumes and she made me a red tutu and a sort of wreath of flowers in my hair. And uh, I remember on the first night stepping out in that costume in the last act of the play to just people falling about in hysterics. And I just, that was just a moment. I just knew, I was just like, this is the absolute best. This is the best thing. This is the best thing ever. Yeah. And since then, I've wanted to be an actor, really. Um, so continued doing that youth theatre for a couple of years, did lots of things, played Seymour in Little Shop of Horrors, and we did a production of King Lear, and I played Gloucester. I must have been the youngest Gloucester ever at 17. <laughs> uh, various other bits and bobs. And then in my late teens, I auditioned for drama school and, yeah. uh, and ended up going to RADA, yeah. And 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 how was that? Because, again, big change from being out in Wales to being in RADA, where um, I, was, I was speaking recently to Maxine Peake about this. Oh, yeah, well, she, she used to come back yeah, a fair bit, actually. And, yeah, and, talk and she to still us, does yeah. loads of good stuff there. But yeah. she was saying there's an element, because my view of RADA is very inaccurate, I guess. I, I used to go to spoken word nights all around the country, and there was one that was at RADA, yeah. and it always felt so posh. Yeah. And it felt like every time I'd get up, it'd feel like the, the, they were letting the staff have a go. Yeah. Um, but from what Maxine was saying was they've always had a good history of getting people from all sorts of and areas she's right, and having so a real she, mixture. So yeah, was that I, the case for you? Did it feel kind of welcoming? Well, I think I think sometimes what happens with Rada, a slight sense of grandeur and earnestness is mm. m- um, is mischaracterised as poshness. Yeah. Because actually, it's a really great cross-section of people. Yeah. You know, there's a yeah. real mixture of ethnicities, of cultural backgrounds, of... You know, there's people from, not, not even just from the UK, you know, um, yeah. people from, you know, there was a Greek girl in my year and there was a girl f- for, who was from Turkey or at least one of her parents was from Turkey. And, um, 
there was a girl from Brazil and, uh, you know, it was, um, so in that sense, it felt very kind of diverse. So I, I never felt there was, there was a couple of people who come out of Cambridge or Oxford or whatever, and were, you know, very educated and and well-spoken, but it felt like a real healthy mix. And they really, really looked after me because I was from uh, a household that had income, a household income under 25 grand. Mm -hmm. I, I got like a lot of my fees paid, you know, yeah. I could, I couldn't have gone otherwise, you know, yeah. when I auditioned, I auditioned for five drama schools and, you know, I had to, my each, you know, immediate members of my family gave me like 40, 50 quid for each audition because you have to pay to audition. Right. And, you know, it was a real family effort to get me to those auditions. That's beautiful. Oh no, it was, I mean, you know, my family, they are, you know, amazing. And, um, uh, yeah. And then when I actually got to RADA, they really supported me. There was, there was, there was private benefactors and, and stuff who, who give money to, to, to support students who are, who can't afford to yeah. go through the drama school. So I think, you know, I think there is a sort of slightly outdated idea about rather being this kind of very sort of hoity toity place. And that, that, that wasn't my experience of it. Look, I mean, I, I would say candidly, there's, you know, I think the place has some, it certainly did when I was there. I haven't really been back. It had some stuff that it needed to work on. And I, yeah. I didn't always love my time there, but I don't, but I never identified that as being a problem with it, yeah. you know, a sort of an elitism. I didn't feel that. Yeah. That's really interesting. So to kind of, I mean, as you've probably heard before, we go all over timelines on this. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah cool. To kind of rewind and jump forward, having been that kid making these little figurines and mm. characters, how was it to then work on like Dark Crystal and Moomin Valley and stuff like that that would have been yeah. stuff that you were possibly totally. aware of at that time? Totally, mate. And I think that, you know, that is, that's exactly the appeal. It's the yeah. same thing. And that's why I love those. It's why when someone says, do you want to come and voice a character in something, I run at it like a bullet, a red flag, yeah. because there's something I really love about that, you know, creating an entity that's unlike anything. Yeah in the real world and being a part of giving it a voice and giving it a soul is, it's really, really exciting. And it's so inherently collaborative as well. I think there's something quite humbling about doing voice work because, you know, you're not, you're, you're, you're one cog in the machine. Whereas, yeah. you know, sometimes when you're on set and if you're, you know, if you're playing a big role, you know, you can feel a bit like you're the, you're the center of the yeah. universe. Yeah, yeah, and of yeah, course it's completely. absolute nonsense, but you know, <laughs> there's something I really like about, Voice work, I think it's quite a nice exercise in humility, I think, as yeah. well. I, and I just love the creative process of it. I, it's hard as well. It's, that's what I like about it. I think it's deceptively difficult. Have you done much yourself? I've, I've done a few voiceover things yeah. during a lockdown yeah, because yeah, I've got yeah. a studio at home. So yeah. there's a few things I was like, oh, I can do this. But I did I did a voiceover for, for an animation that has still never seen the light of day, but, but it was with Joe Gilgan, James A. Caster, no Brett Goldstein, and it was such a good crew of people and we Why just said not the, it, the guys who were making it were friends of Gilgan and I, I, I assume they've just had other projects have taken over and sure. it'll get there one day but it was one of my favourite days of work because it was exactly that we're, we're just all in a room doing it at the same time it yeah. was only like That's a it was only a short well. yeah. so it was only a 20 minute thing so we could do it over the whole day just keep workshopping it keep changing it Yeah, and yeah I adored it because it was you don't have all those other elements as you say. And it's interesting because you say about how when you're on camera and maybe in an important role, you could get a false sense of importance. Yeah. But that's because they need to get you in the best place to give your performance. They need you to not be worrying about 
your tea or yeah. your or this and that. So yeah, I, I, I believe it's good, yeah. I believe it's it can be seen as pampering, but then when you realise some of the great performances that we've seen in, in cinema, yeah, that couldn't have happened if they were thinking about anything else at all. Yeah, yeah. So I think the reason that's come in in film and TV is to release as many of the in, the yeah. unimportant ones. I think where it goes wrong is where people start turning up two hours late to set, and yeah. that's where it starts yeah. getting a bit. I've seen that as well. Uh, yeah, I think we all have. <laughs> uh, where that starts getting a bit distorted, I think, but. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. I, you know, it's the same appeal for me, you know, making silly little cartoonish figurines and doing the voice work. I love, um, I love that. I love and, that thing. And the interesting thing is because none of us are on camera, I, I really, this is a really specific thing, but I really enjoyed the enjoyment on other people's faces as someone's doing a really good line. Yeah. Because you don't yeah. have to be keeping in a yeah, straight face or yeah. whatever. And it was, I remember there was a particular bit where I had to read out a really big number. And it's this ridiculous... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah, blah. And every time it had started to build up, I'd intentionally de- deliver it so it's kind of building up in anticipation as you yeah. get to the end. Every time it got to the end, everyone's face kind of been like... Yeah, I know. It's as lovely. we continue on, which it's you wouldn't be able to, to do on set. You have to hide all of that on set. Yeah. You have to have that internally. Like, so, <laughs> so how was it getting your first big moment where you are that, that centre of attention? Kingsman really threw you into the limelight. I was so excited about it because I'm a Mark, Mark Miller fan. Yeah. I love the comic books. You've had him on the show, haven't you? Yeah, right? yeah I've yeah. had him on. I think yeah. he's absolute genius. I love his outlook. He's yeah. so relaxed and casual about everything. And he's yeah. created some of the biggest... He's a big kid, isn't he? He's, he is. Yeah. He's a massive kid. So, And then when it came out, I loved it because all my family is, is South London. It's got that very South London feel and there's a lot of of that in it. How how was that to get that role and then I mean, have it all on your shoulders as such? Yeah, I mean, it was... It was it, you know, it was insane. It was both the most thrilling, exciting, joyous thing. You know, oh my god, I'm in a, I'm leading a film with Colin Firth and Samuel Jackson and Michael Caine and Mark Strong. But it, but the the pressure of it was, I mean, you know, it was it was it was massive. Yeah. And it was very early on in my relationship with Matthew Vaughan as well. You know, I would cautiously say now that I sort of think of him as family and I love him very much. But at that stage, he he, you know, he's a He's he's a he's quite tough in some ways, yeah. Matthew. And I it was, was it was a pressure one for him as well, though, wasn't of it? Because it, it was, was that yeah. kind of going out on his own yeah. kind of. And it was financed in a very particular way as well that yeah. gave him a degree of um, ensured authorship, I yeah. suppose. And so I think there was a degree of pressure on him. I think, in fact, I'm sure had he not had that sort of degree of control, I, I don't think I'd have made it to the screen, frankly, because I was mm. an unknown. But I was 23, and I was and I am a, a sensitive little thing and I, I found it hard, you know, the pressure of uh, having to get into really great shape, the pressure of having to play what I always felt was quite a character part. And I suppose, you know, it was a tough time. I also broke up with my first girlfriend at that stage and, right. that, and that was, you know, I, I was 20, she was, you know, we'd been together for two years, I was 23 and it really, it, well, it did what it does to a lot of people. It really tore me apart, really. Yeah. And um and so it was a tough, it was a tough time. Um, but again, this is an industry that, that doesn't allow for the real you, world. You've you got to put it, you've got to leave yeah, it at home. There's no real, you know, there's no, oh, I'm struggling yeah. at the moment. It's like, cool. Yeah. Your call time, six o'clock. See you then. No, exactly. And I have to say. <laughs> hope you're okay. Yeah, <laughs> you no, know? exactly. I mean, and do you know, I had, there was one day where I did have, you know, a conversation like that with the producers because I was in a bad place and I was, I was, you know, I was hit, I, I was, around my 24th birthday I was hitting it quite hard on the weekends mm. and then also training and then coming in 
And, you know, I mean, frankly, looking like a bag of shit, really. And there was one day in particular where Matthew was just like, we can't shoot you. You don't, you don't look good enough. You know, you wow. were, cause I look really rough and I was, yeah. but I was just, I was, you know, I still have some 30 now. I still feel like a kid, you know, yeah, I was yeah, definitely yeah, yeah. a kid at 24 and the pressure of it, that was, I was releasing pressure in the wrong way. And, um, and I quickly sorted my act out and got it together. And, but it was, it was a lot. You know, anyway, I don't wish to paint a negative image of, of what making the first Kingsman film was like, because frankly, it was, you know, it felt like winning a golden ticket to William yeah. Walker's Chocolate Factory. And it was absolutely amazing. I'm still very proud of the movie. Um, I think, the, you know, one or two elements of it that time won't be kind to in terms of... But, I agree. But, um, I agree. but I think generally, you know, what it is is a fun, provocative... Um, spy thriller with its tongue in its cheek I think you know it's it's cool and I'm hoping we get to do another one and it was exciting as well because you as you mentioned it had that b- backbone of experience of Colin Firth Samuel mm. Jackson Michael Caine yeah. Mark Strong all of these but then it was you and Sophia Patella basically having your breakout roles yeah there. yeah yeah and it came across so well they were two characters that felt like like I, I was was looking back and Obviously, I remember Kingsman. I was like, oh, what was he in before that? Because it felt like yeah, we already well, knew you. Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Oh, that's right. how the film came across in my memory. I'm like, yeah. Well, yeah, that's that, Taron and, and, and Sophia as, as well. I had her on the podcast a couple of years back. And I was like, I remember in that, but it, both of the characters, again, because they are kind of character pieces. Yeah. They stood up so well that it felt like, oh, I know these actors. I know everyone else. So I oh, must know nice. these Thank guys you. as well. And it's a. Well, they just, they were great. They were great roles, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think particularly the role of Eggsy, just because, I mean, if you were to put a blueprint to it, it's Pygmalion, it's My Fair Lady, you know, it's yeah. that story of a guy going from rough around the edges to adopting something of a more refined persona. Yeah. I think Matthew very shrewdly dispensed with that very quickly. It's not like he starts all of a sudden speaking like Colin, but yeah. what he does have is a great arc and it's so, you know, I think part of the reason that the world loves Marvel and other superhero movies is because it involves an element of metamorphosis and a cat and someone literally changing before your eyes. Yeah. And that's so exciting to watch. And I think Eggsy really had that. So where you go see him go from one very distinct look to another to becoming this effectively a superhero with this bulletproof suit and this very slick yeah. hair and, you know, these glasses and all the rest of it with the umbrella. It's exciting. And yeah, I, I really loved it. I mean, it was, you know, I think I'm, forever going to feel like I owe uh, Matthew Vaughan my career and I don't mind that really you know we're still very close he continues to to champion me at every available opportunity and yeah but it was amazing man it was amazing and when I saw the movie I remember Matthew set up a screening for me I think in Soho and I took like five or six of my close mates from ABBA maybe one or two others and we watched it and I'd always felt not not in a presumptuous way but I'd always felt uh, there's something about this. This is cool. Like there was, yeah. I think it was to do with seeing Colin in a certain way and yeah. Sam playing this very zany villain and the turnaround with Michael Caine at the end of the yeah. film. And I just thought, yeah, people are going to dig this. But when I watched it, I was just like, fucking hell, you know, that is that's proper. That's cool. You <laughs> yeah, know? And, yeah. um, and so it was a really, really exciting time in my life. And um, yeah, and uh, I'm very proud of the movie and the character and all the rest of it. Yeah, well, Mark's still... Picks that as his favorite or equal favorite of of the interpretations of his work. work, Yeah, yeah, and and so so after it being a tumultuous journey in the making, how was it when it came out? Because it did. I'm a massive cinema nerd, and particularly of the cinema itself. I love the cinema experience. 
And it was a game changer because it invented this f- f- February release slot. Yeah, there, yeah, there wasn't yeah. a thing before that. Valentine's and Kingsman was yeah. the one that came out in a period where generally you don't release big films because they're all in the summer or a few yeah. at Christmas. And Kingsman came out there and was one of the biggest films of the year. And yeah. it made it literally changed how films are released now. There's always a Something couple of things that in time. that February yeah. slot now. So how was that? Because even if you were excited about it, you probably couldn't have predicted how well. I don't think anyone could, because the fact it was in that slot that was yeah. kind of a mid-year slot, Yeah, it I, felt I, no one was predicting it. But, you know, at that age, I had so little understanding of release dates yeah. and, uh, you know, box offices and how all of that works and how it is such a motivator for the industry, or was. You know, at that age, I was just like, I was just going where I was told to go yeah. and, you know, trying to be charming and, and sell the movie, really. You know, I had, I had no, I didn't, I, I didn't have any concept of what it was, what they were hoping it was going to make. I didn't have any concept of the significance of the release date. You know, I knew we were going up against, um, come on, Sam Taylor Johnson, what's the movie? Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes, yes, of course. And yeah. that was alarming. I knew that people were twitchy mm. about that, but... um you know, we really held our own and, and, and got a really good slice of the pie that weekend. And, yeah, it was this sort of, I suppose, relatively sleeper hit. Yeah, I love it. So how was it, again, at, at that point, you were playing newly created characters and character pieces, as I said. How was it to go on and do Eddie the Eagle, where you're having to portray someone in real life? Yeah. Again, people have different approaches of doing their own research or relying on the script. What was your... I think, your approach to that? I think, it, I think you know, that m- movie was directed by Dexter Fletcher, yes. who, of course, has been on the show as well. Yes, and, um, I love Dexter. Um, and there's something about, you know, Dexter's style of filmmaking, and Matthews as well, I think, that there is a sort of slightly heightened quality. And I think with, yeah. with Eddie the Eagle, I don't think any of us were labouring under the delusion that we were going into it, creating a sort of you know, social network style. I mean, it's not really yeah. appropriate. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a really austere, calculated sort of carbon copy biopic. Yeah. We, we wanted to make something that was like Cool Runnings or, yeah. you know, something that had that sort of 80s sensibility of fun popcorn buddy movie with just loads of heart. So, you know... He, Which is right, because Eddie the Eagle wasn't... That's a, what he was, a, a yeah. Celebra- a traditional celebrity. No, no. You can't make that serious drama. Here's his, his exactly, tough journey. It's exactly. like, no, he was a comical character. That was the point. Exactly, and I think we were more going for something that felt like an approximation of, of, of how people... of people's affection for him mm. rather than trying to emulate him exactly. So, you know, I, I'm there's moments in that movie where I'm much more cartoonish than, than Eddie really is, but... You know, what we never wanted to do was mock him. It was always, you know, it's grounded with enough moments of proper drama, especially with the relationship with parents and also with Hugh's character. Um, I think to earn those moments of of comedy. But um, I, I, you know, I felt that, I mean, I suppose had it been a really serious biopic, I would have been really, really skinny and tried to make myself look like an Olympic ski jumper. Yeah. And like, it just wasn't really what we went for. No. Um, we were going for a sort of every man slightly cuter thing. But it, it was it was just the most incredible um, experience. Yeah. And um, it, it, there was just a sort of alchemy that happened in terms of... It's not very often... And Hugh said this, actually. It's not very often that you have an amazing time on set and the movie's good. And yep. we just had the best time. I can also contest to that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we all know it. Um, and so 
yeah, we just had this amazing time. Dexter and I clicked immediately and then Hugh came into the equation and I, we, we, I just found that for some reason, I don't think of myself as being a particularly funny bloke, but for some reason I just had the facility to make Hugh crack up. And, right. and we, we just became very close very quickly and had a, a really, a really amazing time. And we were filming in such a, a, a beautiful place out in Germany and Austria, Bavaria. And, um, it was, you know, snow capped, gorgeous. And then we came back to London for a month and it was just, it was just wonderful. And I, I missed it when it was gone actually. And then again, you know, I kind of turned up to the screen in to see the movie and, um, I just thought it was fab, you know, I mean, not to be self-congratulatory, I just thought, God, I'm, I'm really pleased with that, you know, yeah. and, and um, I just thought he had bags of heart. I was going to say, Dexter's amazing at finding heart oh, in everything. Well, everything he's, he's done, he's just got I mean, so much heart in yeah, there. Yeah, he must have seen Wild Bill, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. he just has a lot of love and warmth in him, and, and also, you know, it would be remiss not to mention Matthew in the background as well, also sort yeah. of coordinating things and, and, and being a very creative producer and, he has such an incredible instinct for for how to put something together in the right way, and so yeah, it was wonderful. I think I think everyone felt a little bit. I mean, the the world and his mum's seen it now, mm. you know, on streamers or whatever. Yeah. But at the time, it didn't quite bring people into the cinema in the way we hoped. Sure. Which you know, I think a lot, some people were upset about. It didn't make didn't make a great deal of difference to my life in that moment, you know. But I I, I was just so proud that we'd made something that I felt. I'd, I'd, I'd loads of warmth and loving it. And, I think it's yeah. similar from something I've experienced in, in music. If you make the art that you want to make, yeah, and it comes out how you wanted it, yeah, it doesn't really matter how successful it is. Whereas if you've tried to make a pop hit, yeah, and then it's not successful, uh, yeah. it breaks your heart because because that's exactly what you're aiming for. So it's exactly I think it's mate. right to go that kind of well. I get to walk away happy now. I've at the screening. It's not released yet. I've watched it and I love it. I get to walk away happy. Never. Now, whatever happens next is Honestly, out of my control. Never a true word said, man. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely bang on the money. And yeah. it's, you know, I think if, I, if I've gleaned any wisdom over the few years I've been working in film, it's just stay in the day, focus on the moment you're focusing on, give it your all, and don't try and end game anything, you know, yeah. and um, and just let it develop, you know, into what... I mean, I don't... Th- I think the really... I think part of the secret to Dexter's success, and I'm not sure you thank me for saying this, he has bags of passion and bags of enthusiasm and, and works so, so hard, but I don't think he'd pretend that he knows exactly what he's making when he's making it. I mm-hmm. think he lets it unfold because it's an, inher- it's an inherently collaborative medium. You've got... People, you know, specialists in so many different fields and everyone fires on all cylinders when it's working well and it's how that comes together. So how can you possibly know exactly what it's going to be? Maybe if you're a really autocratic director with, you know, gazillions at your disposal, maybe you can control everything to that extent. But in my experience of working with Dexter, that's not really his style. And I, I, I like that. I like the sort of, you know, let's kind of see what happens side yeah. of things, you know, and um, and I feel like that really worked well for Dex on Eddie the Eagle. I, I, I love when people have that, have the confidence to to, to, to work like that. Yeah. I experienced yeah. it when working with Tom Hardy on a couple of things and he was very much in this period. And again, it might have changed over the years, but in, it was very much of the outlook of best idea wins. Yes. And course, again, yeah. I've seen that on a few different things and, to have that on, like, the first thing I was on with Tom, if, if something isn't working, then best idea wins. Yeah. And there was points where I've done two things and I'm th- throwing in ideas 
and they're getting through and it's going to work. And yeah. I've spoken to Stevie Graham about that, who we'll talk about yeah. later because you work together on an amazing film. And he's had, he's said, I've been on things with like Scorsese or, or all yeah. these huge people. And you go, let's try it this way. It's not working. And to have that openness rather than to feel if you acknowledge it's not working, it's a sign of weakness. You yeah. failed in some way, which some directors will have. It will be, well, no, here's how I planned it. Yeah. So here's how it's happening. Rather than go, it's not working. Yeah. We all know it's not working. Well, here's how I planned it. I'm right. Totally. And I think it is it is such a killer of creativity that, yeah. you know, yeah. I think that best idea wins is such a bit of wisdom. And, uh, we've, you know, anyone who works in film or theatre, you know, has come across people, I'm sure, where an idea kind of doesn't, get through because it's not come from the right place or whatever. And yeah. that is just, uh, it's just fucking bullshit, isn't it? You know, it's just, no, it is, you know, and, it, and it's, um, it, I actually have been very lucky. I haven't worked with many people who are like that, but, yeah. um, but I know it happens. Yeah, completely. So, I mean, we've spoken about how the pandemic has, has forced everyone to take a breather and look at things. At this point you hadn't taken a breather. So to walk into the, the opportunity to be up for the role of playing Elton John yeah. and then to get that, how was that? Did you have a moment to realise how much pressure there was in a way and yeah, I all mean, of that? Yeah, because it happened quite slowly. So we were doing the second Kingsman film in the spring of 2016 and Elton was involved in that movie playing a sort of, yes, of you course. know, very um, sort of crazy <laughs> cameo and a uh, big cameo. And, um, yeah. And Matthew and exaggerated Elton. And exaggerated Elton. Well, I didn't even know you could How's do that. that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, basically Matthew approached me about it. And I have, to, weirdly, really weirdly, the, the sort of being the jumped up little novice actor I was, I asked my agents, because I share a team with Tom Hardy. We've got the same, mm-hmm. two of the same agents and yeah. the same uh, lawyer. And, and I said, look, you know, what's happening with Tom's rocket man? Because if this for whatever, because it had been sat around for like three and a half years. Completely. It was bouncing back and forth for yeah. ages. And so I said, look, if this ever comes back on the market, as it were, we got to get me in front of whoever the right person is. It's what, it's one of the, f- the funny ones with someone like Tom, who is often s- so transformative. Yeah. It's not easy to just go, we'll go from that film to that film. Cause if he's got a, like he did with Capone, yeah. and if he's got to put on a load of weight yeah, and do yeah, this yeah, and do that, yeah. you can't then, do you know what I mean? It's I, weird, I mean, I think it's I, weird how that scheduling and stuff can end up working. I, and I think that was it. I think it was a question of scheduling and yeah. he being the very busy man that he is. And, um, you know, and also I, I know Tom a yeah. bit. We've worked together and we've always stayed oh, in touch. Legend, you, yeah, you, yeah. It was a great one. Yeah. Cause we, and we got on very, very well on that. And, um, and you know, basically what happened was, the, the movie kind of changed hands a bit, basically. Yeah. And by the time that had happened, Tom was, I think, like, getting on for 40. Mm-hmm. And the character starts their journey in the movie at, like, 17, you yeah. know, 16 or something. And so they looked at other people. I think at one stage they might have looked at, like, I can't remember. They looked at various people anyway for the role. Yeah. But... Matthew had gotten friendly with Elton and David on the set of Kingsman 2 and they'd obviously been having some sort of conversation about things and um, and he approached me on set and said, look, how do you feel about playing Elton? And I was like, oh my God, I've, yeah, I've read that script. Yeah. Um, and that was the start of it really and then it kind of, it was probably about two years before it became something that felt really real. Yeah. 
in the autumn of 2017, I started going into a studio with Dex and with uh, Giles Martin and we started singing some stuff. And I, they filmed in the following January, they filmed me at a piano doing your song and don't let the sun go down on me. And I didn't really know what we were doing. My understanding was that it was, it was a, it was a sort of, it was an attempt to sort of demonstrate or give a flavor of what we were intending to do. Yeah. I have me sing and do a version of the character that isn't quite so, you know, it's not Bohemian Rhapsody or Ray where they sort of use original vocals and someone doing an incredibly good impersonation, something that was a little bit more, I don't know, whatever the word is, uh, rough and ready, I suppose. And so we recorded that and that, and then it all sort of snowballed from there really. And we started shooting in 2018 of that year. Uh, and it took up, I mean, it, it, it took up two years of my life, really, because yeah. there was so much. We were essentially recording an album as well as making a movie. So there was a, there was a, such a, a, a huge period of working before and after shooting. And then the whole madness of promoting and then doing a bit of the awards circuit that it was it was a really, really long time. Um, yeah. And I mean, just, just amazing. I just loved playing that part so much. It felt, it just was such a, it just felt like it afforded me so many different exciting things to do with the singing and also making myself look so different and also just um, playing somebody who changes so much through the course of the film, goes from being someone very shy and retiring to someone who's a fucking nightmare, you know, and and very difficult and erratic and addicted. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was, it was absolutely awesome. And uh, I I will always be so, so grateful for that opportunity and it's a time in my life that I will always really, really cherish. I love it. And, and what I loved about y- your performance was it highlighted, because again, Elton's known for his flamboyance, but particularly the first, like the first performances in like the club or whatever, and things yeah, like that, yeah. he's got the flamboyance, but you then realise, even if you go and rewatch his biggest performances, he's defiantly casual about it. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's this yeah. huge flamboyant thing and he's very much just, throwing it away and I thought you nailed that that kind of getting that across of again you take to Freddie Mercury every inch of his body is making sure here's my performance here's my moment whereas Elton wants to do as big a performance as that but act as if he's just woken up there you go Eh, it's nothing to me exactly well I think you know (laughs) certainly by the time you're in the mid 70s I think there was probably a fair bit of him just getting up quite late and bowing down there you know I think his life was in sort of uh a barely contained state of chaos for such a long time with, you know, the partying. Um, uh, and yeah, I think it was different, you know, if you talk to him about it, it was, he, I think he felt like he couldn't really do what Freddie Mercury did. And he felt like he couldn't really do what Bowie or Jagger did with those cheekbones, yeah. and, you know, and that moving. And so his way of expressing himself and his brand of, um, of extroversion, if that's a word, extroversion, yeah. being an extrovert, um, was to dress outrageously and to be quite outrageous and yeah. to be very provocative. And and yeah, and the, you know, the moments in the film where I'm allowed to emulate that were, were really fun. Did you f- find yourself thinking back to when you were at school and you had to put on that pink tutu? Yeah, You definitely. weren't happy about it. And yeah. now you're like, I'm now at a place where I can revel in this. No, 100%. And I think as well, you know, I'm somebody, you know, there's... There are actors in the world who are, you know, always in phenomenal shape and are very considered about their appearance. And 
I just haven't got it in me. Uh, so I'm a little bit more, you know, I have moments where I'm in good shape and I have moments where I take great pride in my appearance and I have moments where I really don't give a shit. Um, and there was something about playing Elton that I found very, very liberating because I was not deliberately not, uh, in, in the best shape of my life, but there's something very, very freeing about putting on a vest and a pair of hot pants and a gold bomber jacket and being what is essentially the most powerful person in the room you know there's that thing that they tell you at drama school where it's the king doesn't play the king the court plays the king you know the king yeah. the king does wow. the king does whatever he wants to do yeah. and i sort of felt that way a bit about elton at his ugliest moments really and i think he would he would you know he wouldn't he wouldn't blush at me saying that you know it's there's a freedom in doing i feel like elton you know at those bad moments just uh, can do whatever the fuck he wants and that was that was quite fun to play with i love that so how was that one to finally get to watch because again what Dexter did with it was so unusual and extravagant Mm. when I had him on the podcast I wasn't allowed to mention it at the time but I'm sure there's like a certain amount of time has passed so he he can't get in trouble for it (laughs) but he took me in in, into the editing suite because they'd just put together an edit of of that of the bit where you fall into the pool yes and then when it all just becomes this amazing surreal scene yeah and it was it it was mind-blowing because I interviewed Dexter before the film had come out, so I hadn't seen the yeah. film and it was still being edited, obviously. But to see that, I was like, oh, this isn't a no- Again, this isn't a, no. s- a social network. It, you no, know, no, This no. isn't a regular bar. I absolutely adore the social network, Again, by the way. It's, one, it's one, one of the best of all time. But, but yes. it's a good example of that. Yeah. Here's your more serious version. Yeah, and yeah. Here's your- but again, it also, it wasn't Eddie the Eagle. It didn't take it lightly. No. It was just... I think it was a slightly more sophisticated movie in terms of what it was dealing with and also yeah. our sort of... Tonally, it was more grounded. I think the, about the most absurd it gets is where I'm backstage at the Troubadour and I have my sort of first strop. That's about as kind of farcical as it gets, yeah. I think. But yeah, it, you know, you've got to give credit to Dex and Matthew and also George Richmond who shot that sequence. It's, you know, it's quite visionary, that little bit. It's yeah. a really weird moment it and it's not really, I've not really seen much else like it. And, and what's great about it as well, you know, I listened to... Um, Himesh on the podcast the other night and he yeah. was saying, you know, about Nolan's work and about how you have these very quick, snappy cuts, but yeah. they're all Im- Im- imbibed with a real moment of story. And I think, you know, it's really true of Nolan's work. And I think that that moment in Rocketman, that sequence, it tells such a great story because, yeah. you know, it's a story of someone who's not really keeping it together, but is being patched up by the vehicle around him. And then being ushered on stage and I don't know. And then he sort of, you know, shoots off into the sky like a rocket, which is amazing because some people laughed and some people are sort of shocked and some people kind of get emotional at it. And I mean, I think if you can get, if you can get one or two moments like that, that's, that's a real triumph because it's resonating with people in a way that some, where that they don't really understand. And I think it's to do with them being properly empathetically engaged and I just you know first time I watched that I was like oh wow yeah that is that's cool that's completely it. I love that I love that the, the 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 point that it's causing a reaction that you may not understand and you don't have to I yeah. think there's a problem at points with the way modern cinema has become is that we have to explain everything and there has to be this explains that and this this links to that and that can be great but if you walk into a gallery you can see a painting and love it and not Absolutely, know why. Yeah. You just there's something about it that you love. There's something visceral. Yeah. So finding those visceral moments rather than well, how are we going to explain that that he turned into a rocket and yeah. shot up into the sky? It's like, we don't have to. It's well, not I about think, that. I, it's about those moments of totally. I think that's you know with big commercial 
studio filmmaking as Rocketman was, that is always the battle, you know, yeah. because there is, there's always a pull towards something more binary and something more, um, as you say, explainable and rational because that's quantifiable and quantifiable is what makes big business models work. Yeah. And actually the best art quite often is where you watch it and go, I, I don't quite know why I just watched, but I really loved it. Yeah. And I'm not really sure how I feel about it, but I feel something and I know I'm going to be thinking about it for quite a while. And I think Dex and I were both quite passionate and bullish about trying to get a sense of that into what was otherwise quite a commercial endeavour. You know, we were coming off the back of Bohemian Rhapsody, which had made a billion gajillion dollars or something. Yeah. So everyone was getting very hot and bothered about Rocketman doing the same thing. And, you know, exactly as you said earlier, you know, if you don't end game, you know, you were saying yeah, yeah, about doing what feels good to you and what feels creatively sort of authentic to you and the rest will fall into place. And I'm really, you know, still got 18 months on from the release. Thankful to say that, you know, the movie that arrived on screens is the movie that we wanted to make. And of course there were some compromises, but I don't feel like the integrity of it was ever compromised. And Dexter feels like the per- the perfect person to be going into to battle, to make it the film you oh, want yeah. it to be. Cause he's an argumentative oh, fucker and he's not yeah, going to be yeah, yeah. intimidated or in awe of people. He's obviously he's respectful, but he will be. <laughs> no, no, no we, this is no. how it's meant to fucking be. No, we had some, <laughs> we had some heated conversations about stuff. You know, there was stuff that we really, felt passionately and, to, and yeah. you know, in credit, you know, to, to the studio and, 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 and David and Elton and Matthew and everybody, you know, every, everyone did the right thing and I think preserved it and as for what it was meant to be, which was something that felt raw and at times painful, but also celebratory. It was never meant to be, you know, it never meant to be heavy in a way that inhibited your enjoyment of it, but it wasn't, I mean, it's a movie about a drug addict, you know, getting well, you know, so it's not, there's only so light you can make it the whole way yeah. through, you know? Yeah. I love it. Well, uh, uh, this next bit, I've noted down, and it's going to feel a bit shoehorned in, but because it is, but it's a topic I've not had a, a discussion with anyone on. And I've argued with some mates in the past, and just things I've read online, when there's actors who will say that they don't want to do a gay scene, right. or they're not comfortable doing a gay scene. And right. I call bullshit on it because you do a, a love scene, it's it's acting. Yeah, it's the yeah. characters are in love. Yeah. I'm happily in a relationship. I will happily do a love scene in a film yeah. if it comes up because it's not me, it's the character. Yeah. Equally, I will happily do a gay scene in a film because yeah. it's not me, it's the character. So it's kind of, I've had some awkward conversations with mates who say, oh, I, just, I wouldn't feel comfortable. I don't feel I'd perform it correctly. It's like, well, either you're lying about a normal love scene only being acting yeah. or you're being kind of homophobic in, yeah. in not being comfortable with that. So how was that to kind of embrace that? Because again, it all everything felt so natural in your, your performance of Elton. It didn't feel like there was any scenes that felt like it was trying to be, here's our moment of no, what, no. we're okay with homosexuality. It's, like, it's just yeah. a key side note in his story as such. Yeah, and it's such a, it's a tough one, you know, because I think there's a really interesting conversation about, you know, how valid it is for straight actors to play a gay role mm-hmm. and then receive, you know, great adulation and, you know, as if there's some sort of great triumph of, of, of transforming yourself into a gay person, whatever it yeah. is. And so I'm keen to play it down because I don't quite know what the answer to that question is. Yeah. I'm not sure. I still don't feel it's clear cut, but I understand, I understand the question. and I understand yeah, yeah, yeah. the debate with regards to that scene. You know, I, I don't know. It was just, it was part of the story. I felt like it was an important part of the story. Yeah. I'm not in any way uh, uncomfortable with physical intimacy. I don't think, I, you know, I, I, I can't really figure out. I mean, look, you know, I've done other love scenes before and they're 
they're horrible. They yeah, are, un- yeah, they're, un- yeah. they're un- you know, heterosexual, yeah. homosexual, you know, masturbating on your own. It's just not a fun thing to have to do on camera. Um, so it was, you know, I'm very, very lucky in that Richard and I really clicked very, very quickly when he came on set. And, um, and it was just something we got on with and did. And, yeah. uh, and it, you know, I think it, it's really, I think it's really beautifully shot. I think it's a really important moment in that character's agree. coming of age and, and his awakening. And, um, and that's that really, but I don't think it's anything to be massively commended for. I think it's really, I think what is commendable is that it, it, it was in the movie yeah. and, and it made its way into the movie. But for my part, I'm not sure that, I don't know, you know, it's just part of the gig. I completely yeah, agree. You know. I completely agree. And again, it's that thing of there's loads of things that you've got your unusual days. Like I, I did a, yeah. a film a while back on my first day on set. It got moved forward. So I literally came from the Eurostar straight onto set. And the first scene was me masturbating, but trying to not make <laughs> it look like I'm masturbating because they're only Lovely. seeing me th- through a keyhole and they're trying yeah. to, they think I'm building something, but in reality, the reveal later on, is I was I was wanking. So again, that to walk straight on set, haven't met anyone. To be like, right now, you need to look more, no less like you're masturbating now, yeah. no more like you're masturbating. The problem <laughs> is that's the first impression as well. So you're always the wanking guy. Yeah, that's rough. Exactly. But yeah. again, that's that's exactly where all love scenes and all that kind of thing should sit together. Yeah, I, I think you're completely right. It shouldn't be singled out as a different thing or or even a greater consideration as said i'm not sure if i'm comfortable with this no, so, no well, if you're I think, comfortable you're comfortable with your- i think what's more you know relevant is like is it important to the story does it yeah. serve a purpose i think and i hope that it was it was uh satisfying yeah. for people who are you know um not whatever the, you know what's the phrase cis Petro, or whatever, yeah, but, you, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. you know, to see a, a love scene done in a really, you know, a tender, lovely way um, and for it not to be made a big thing of. I mean, yeah. unfortunately, it was made a big thing of before the movie came out because of an article that was released in the, um, I think it was the Mail. And um, and that that was a shame for a while because I all of a sudden, I felt, I felt a bit, I felt a bit fucked off about it because it was like, well, the point is that it shouldn't be something that we're all talking about loads. The point yeah. is should be to normalise it. And by scan, by sensationalising it, it almost does the opposite. And so I felt that that was a shame. But that just shows that we're not living in a world where everything is as sane and right as it should be yet. You know, yeah. just, the, just the existence of it in a big studio movie isn't enough. You know, you'll feel like you're really reaching... I don't know what the bloody word is. It'll feel like stuff's more, it'll feel like stuff's better when it's, when it goes without people noticing. Exactly that. And with that in mind, like, how do you feel about where cinema is going at the moment? Because again, I do think we've had a lot of progression in recent years for, again, for generally non-white cis male Mm. characters. So with the progression of female characters, with the progression of all different races. Yeah. There's still a long way to go. And again, yeah. the the point is that it has to get to that point where it's not felt like it's a big deal. Yeah. It's not felt like it's a marketing no, exactly. part of, yeah. of the film. To go, it's oh, it's still, the female yeah. superhero yeah, yeah. or it's the black superhero. Yeah, it's like, yeah. that's, that's a great part of it, but that shouldn't be the reason you're making it. No. It should be because these, these stories need to be told and need to be yeah. represented. I think, you know, we are still in that stage where there is a cynical element to a lot of that but I think that's probably a stage we have to go through and I I, I mean it feels like there is a I mean I can't you know certainly in 
you know, the Western world. I mean, I, you know, it, at the moment, it feels like there is a real appetite for things to shift and to have a greater level of diversity and opportunity for people who aren't white blokes, really. Yeah. And um, yeah. I think that's, it, I mean, it's so, there is so buzzing with it, isn't it? It's, I, I, and I think it, it is and will get better. I think it just needs everybody to, I was, te- I was texting an actor yesterday actually because I saw his movie Clemency he's an actor called Aldous Hodge do you know yeah I know yeah, I've seen, I've seen I just texted him Clemency yeah yeah it's great we, yeah. really great that's why I texted him and we met at the start of this year and, and I, I haven't spoken to him since and and I we just briefly touched base on the state of the world and and he said he said something I'm paraphrasing but he said something that really stuck in my thought about I said you know it feels like things are and will change and that's exciting as long as everyone's got their eyes on the prize and he said yeah i think the way to think about it is 2020 is the year where we all need 2020 vision mm. and i thought that was quite a cool yeah. little mantra in terms of reminding yourself that vigilance regarding making sure that there are there is equal representation i mean from my perspective in the world of film and making sure that the, you know the films that you work on embrace that philosophy um I think that's what's required of us all now, you know. Completely. I completely agree. Well, I mean, we're, we're getting to the hour mark, so I'll start to wrap things up. But one thing we have to talk about yeah. is Sing. Because oh, I yeah. absolutely fucking adore it. I, I had <laughs> yeah. Garth on, on the podcast, and we, we'd not met up until then. We've got some mutual friends, and we've really hit it off on the podcast to the extent that when I was shooting a film in France a while later, I popped and visited him on my day off. And on that visit, I talked about the... The, the annoyance I got off people that Sing was proud, or confusion more, that it was in my Films of the Year list. Because Films of the Year <laughs> lists are often so highbrow. Yeah, yeah. But I go off what I got the biggest buzz, buzz off from, watching yeah. in the cinema. Yeah. And Sing was one of them. And I, again, I discussed it with Garth, so I won't re- rehash it too much. But so many people, myself included, I can't enjoy reality like t- talent shows yeah. because I'm too cynical. I yeah, know that no, there's a abs- formula yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. playing me. Yeah. And I know that they'll play this particular song and it'll make me start to the well strings. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. then it is a really good formula and it yeah. is really good to get those emotions. So to have it in this animated film to allow you to use all those things and not have to hold back because you feel you're being manipulated, of course you're being manipulated. It's film and it's animation. They yeah, really have to yeah. slave over every moment of it. So I think the difference is, you know, these are characters who are having those journeys that you are manipulated into feeling in real reality television. Yeah. But the feeling is that because it's a completely fictional yeah. animated world, you don't have to feel guilty about the real people no. who are really being manipulated. Exactly. And, you know, I think some of those big talent shows over the years have obviously really tread and crossed that line yeah. between exploitation of people. Hugely. And um, and so seeing, I think, aside from the fact that it's a, a massive, you know, commercial film, yeah. it's less cynical, I think. Yeah. You know? And you, so you can enjoy it a little bit more guilt-free. I mean, I got, I got that part... I auditioned for that part when I was 24, I think. Yeah. And... Um, I knew that there was, I wasn't, I wasn't told who the other actors were, but I knew there was, I was told that there were a couple of big stars involved. And, mm. and so they asked me to go and um, audition and I could pick a song. And I think I did Otis Redding, These Arms of Mine. And uh, I got the part and, you know, Skyped with Garth. He was in Paris, which is where the animation yeah. um, houses, the studio is, uh, Illumination. And, uh, oh, it's just fab. It was just such, again, harking back to harping, harking, harping back to what we were saying earlier about, you know, loving the animated stuff. 
I, I was just in my element. I adored it. Yeah. I remember the first day they showed me a picture of Johnny and I was like, oh, that is just awesome. And then, you know, again, had a little private screening for some mates. It was bigger that time. There was about 40 of us in there. Dex. Dex was 15 minutes late. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, not that I'm uh, bitter about it. But, um, yeah, and I, and I just thought it was fab. I, uh, I loved it. I was really pleased with it and proud of it. And, and we're now working on a sequel which is really yeah. really cool in fact i'm pretty sure that my work is done actually i've been amazing yeah it's such a long process isn't it yeah that was another thing that was amazing visiting garth at illumination yeah he was showing me some of the, yeah. the processes and then even then that was a good few years ago and at that point he was starting to get to work on sing two like that yeah, given yeah. kind of the thumbs up and it's very cool. secretly and quietly but yeah, yeah it was like here's what i'm doing now and it's like Wow, that's a good. It's a, it takes, it's a bit of huge. It takes but, its time. But, you know, I think we, we that movie came out. We premiered at Toronto in 2016, which is exactly four years ago. Yeah, and um, I think now the plan is to release this new one at the end of next year. I think you know, it, depending on what happens in the world, it would be truly amazing to to launch it at Toronto again because we had this incredible like series of. Um, spontaneous rounds of applause during the final act of the movie because yeah. it's so joyous yeah. and, um, and so it would be great to try and I mean maybe a folly but it would be great to try and recapture that experience next year at Toronto but who knows um, but what the, the direction they've taken it in obviously it's more than my life's worth to talk about it but the direction they've taken it in is so cool it's just a spin a slight spin and right. um, and yeah, it, I'm, I'm really excited about seeing the, the finished the finished article. I can't wait. How how nerve wracking is it when the song selections start to come through and you start to find out yeah. what you have to yeah. sing? Because with Elton, obviously, you've got to sing all Elton songs. So yeah. so once you've realised, right, I've got yeah, I've got Elton just about. Then any of his back catalogue, there'll be some learning, but you know you've got it. Whereas yeah. with a thing like Sing, where they can pick any song from any genre, any era. And you have to go, all right, yeah. go ahead. I mean, I think it's funny because obviously they want stuff, they pick stuff that they think kids are going to vibe with, you know, yeah. and has that sort of joyous, buzzy, I suppose quite poppy feel to it. And uh, and so, you know, I, of course, always want some sort of soulful ballad but um, <laughs> and, and didn't get it. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, I trust Garth and Harvey Mason Jr. who, who, who looks after all yeah. the music. You know, those guys... They've done it once before. They know what they're doing, and and I um I recorded my 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 big song recently actually, and um it's cool. I think I think it's going to work really well. I think you know. And how was that? Was that over over Zoom or Skype or something? Now because previously Garth went no to Garth did a lot of flying that. around. So yeah. Garth was we were on a live link. So Harvey's in LA. Yeah, Garth is in Paris. Yeah. I go into a studio in Soho. Great and. Basically, you have to wear a mask until you get into the booth. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. there's, you know, they encourage you to ha sanitize your hands pretty yeah. regularly, but it's mandatory when you go in and mandatory when you leave. And, you know, it's all pretty locked down, as it were. Yeah, um, but yeah, you know, I, I there mean, was an option there, to do it there, from home. There couldn't really be a much safer place than a vocal booth. No, because exactly. it is this kind of airtight. You can make sure it's cleaned out before. Exactly, and, exactly. And they, you know, they sanitize it both sides yeah. of the session. and. You know, it is it is what it is. They said that I could do it from home. You know, there's a way that they could have a team come here and set yeah. set up the, a booth, as it were. But I... And Nick Frost was having the, having that recently. I was talking to him recently. He was yeah. saying, yeah, because he was going to come back on the podcast. He's like, well, actually, if you hold off, 
I've got this gig I'm doing, and they're coming and building a booth. <laughs> a booth right, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Hold off, and we'll do it once I've got all their kit. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, be good idea. Yeah. Just over Zoom or whatever. But yeah, yeah, that's the two variations, I guess. You could have had it all there, but then I think, like, people often talk about, particularly if you're, you're self-employed or self-motivated, it helps to have an office to go to. Do you feel that helped with going to a studio to do it, rather than yeah. just being in your house and going... I guess I'll, I've got I've, I've got my phone call in a minute. I'll go and, and do this on. Hundred percent, yeah. And um, you know, I think that's one of the things that I really focused on during lockdown was you know trying to give yourself structure. You know, so yeah. very strict about not having a beer during the week and waiting till the weekend and doing. I'm like know, that with pizza. That's you, my very much of the weekend. Yeah, but how do you do that? I, I listen to your I off, on your off menu podcast, the first one. Yeah, I was like, this guy eats like I eat. Yeah, but you've got that annoying metabolism thing. Oh, no, that's it. I had that annoying metabolism thing. As soon as you I stopped really, touring... You felt that it started I, to leave I exercised so much more now because I didn't realise. I thought it was all metabolism. Yeah. But then I realised, well... It's for, moving. For basically six years, I was gigging f- three to five nights a week or yeah. three to six nights a week. And it, because I was always energetic live, that's a 90-minute workout every night. Yeah. And as yeah. soon as I stopped touring, course, yeah. I suddenly went, oh, it wasn't metabolism. I was just exercising loads without realising. Uh, yeah. So when I then you, had when to did make... you stop then? I stopped doing music f- five years ago now. Again, the plan was to give acting a go. I wanted to spend a year focusing on trying to get into acting. Yeah. And then the first gig I got was on a, a Guy Ritchie thing. And I was just like, Amazing. I want to do this forever. This is, I've, I've spoken about it once. Was that twice, the gentleman? But, uh, no, no, I was, I was on, on King Arthur. Oh, I right, yeah, cool, cool. Yeah. Cut out completely. It was, oh, did you? as you may have seen, it was one that was two years in the edit. There was a lot of changes. Yeah. And I didn't make it in it at all, but just that experience of being on there and seeing how it all works and yeah. working with some absolutely amazing people and going, yeah. this is what I want to do. And it was the first thing I had a real, a breakthrough moment of everything else I've done in my career. I've always thought, well, there's a time limit on this. Whereas acting was the first one I was thought, imagine how much better I will be in 10 years. Absolutely. And in 20 yeah, years. Yeah, and yeah. You again, always feel like you're growing. There'll probably it? Yeah. be a financial peak. Yeah. But from the art- artist's point of view, you're like, um, I-, I can imagine being a 70-year-old and doing this and totally. being in love with it. Yeah. Whereas I couldn't imagine that with performing music or, or a lot of these other well, things. Well, I can't, I can't really speak to the whole, you know, to many other art forms, but with acting, I you think that is part of the joy of it that you do have these realizations as you do it where you kind of feel like you're leveling up yeah you go oh that's that thing that's why that's why i'm coming stuck on this bit and And that you know it's because i've not really thought about it in this way or it's because i'm not committing enough to it or i'm not giving enough energy to it and i'm trying to do it in a back foot way and but that's not what is required of the character at this moment the biggest one is the biggest one is listening you know and, and not focusing on what you're doing and trying to put the focus off yourself and all of a sudden everything comes for free you know it's 100% and one of the things that really jumped out when going back over your career in this is the people that you've worked with again you've you've got to share that time and spend that time and because I'm I'm a big believer in you learn so much on set yes. I think that's a really yeah, big yeah, place yeah. to you take learn so on the much job. in yeah, yeah. learn on the job a lot I'll, I'll read so much. I'll go to classes and I think they're all good for t- 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 tightening everything and improving. But yeah. I still feel the big breakthroughs I've had have been when I'm on with Stephen Graham or Absolutely. something like that. And he's going, here's a little thing. If you just change that and you're like, fuck, that's, 
that's just changed that's changed good, everything. How good Stevie, eh? He's amazing. He's the best. And he speaks very highly of, of you, him and Hannah. Um, oh, that's nice. How was it? Again, on Rocky Man, you did, you got to jump between so many different people. And Stevie was obviously in, in yeah. the office situation. Yeah, Steve, like Stevie is somebody that I had, like everyone, really admired and feel is, you know, a national treasure. And, yeah. and, and just such a, a person to aspire to be like in terms of not only his ferocious talent, but like his humility, his decency, his warmth, um, his kindness. You know, when we were on set of Rocket Man, he, he, my family were down visiting. He set them up to go and have a tour of, I don't know what it was, Tower Hamlet with beef eaters or something. Yes, he set it up. with our mate Andy. Yeah, yeah it was yeah, that with yeah, Andy. Yeah, that yeah, was yeah, it, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it was just like, he didn't <laughs> need to do that. And, and so we really clicked and hit it off and we stayed in touch and um yeah and i'm looking forward to getting some dinner with him when we're slightly back to normal and you know he's just somebody that i watch like you know the virtues yeah you know for my money i don't think i've seen a better bit of acting than that like no, you know i, I absolutely you know I just, I just don't I, I i don't know where it is you know i watched it and i was just so uh moved and, and blown away and and kind of and furiously jealous of his ability you know but um yeah. you know he's uh he's amazing and um and he is absolutely you know for me someone to aspire to be as good as and be like yeah completely so so i'll wrap things up with just asking or what's ahead if there's anything that you can talk about it's always the toughest question to ask yeah. anyone in film yeah. and even more so at this point in a pandemic <laughs> yeah i mean there's I, I, there's two or two or three things that are still very much unfinished. So then mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're not things I can talk about, but I feel like this Tetris movie is going to happen uh, yeah. in the new year. So I'm happy to talk about that a bit. And that's basically a true, an incredible sort of true story about the rights to Tetris. Because it's mind blowing, isn't it? Because it was the Russian government had some kind of yeah. involvement because and control. Of, it's this- because of, you know, state laws at that time, I think, basically everything belonged to the government really yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. um uh and i play a character called hank rogers who is a game designer and uh involved with licensing games and he it's kind of mad he becomes embroiled in a very complex um unbelievably kind of scary situation where the russian government and the kgb are sort of um, contesting his rights to distribute the game right, uh, yeah. and there's another party involved as well who I won't name for um, legal reasons <laughs> um, and, uh, and so yes that's very very exciting it's been directed by John Baird who oh, you wow. know, did uh, Stan and Ollie and Phil's uh, produced by Matthew Vaughan again so that's cool um, sounds great and again weirdly <laughs> it sounds like it only from what I've read up about it, it sounds like it will be more along the lines of social network. Yes, than, exactly. Than, yeah, yeah. Because again, I you hear Tetris movie yeah. and you think Lego movie or yeah. Emoji movie. No, no. Some of that is very much not that. It's Absolutely. such a mind-blowing story. I remember reading up about it years ago and being like, this How is insane. This not a movie, this is, yeah. yeah. I know. Well, I mean, hopefully that all comes together. I don't know if it will feel quite as, um, as, as clinical and austere as social network because Hank Rogers does bear some, some resemblance to Super Mario, but, um, <laughs> but um, I, uh, or he did anyway, but I'm really excited about it. It's a, 
an amazing script and yeah. um and I think it'll make a great movie. And then the Sing Two coming out next year. Yep. You know, the world feels like it's getting a little bit more back to normal that I'll be able to hit the ground running and, and, and work a lot because it's actually been two years since I made a movie. You know, Rocketman yeah. took so much of my time up afterwards promoting it and finishing the soundtrack off and then of we did the whole awards run thing and um uh I'm I feel a bit cre- a bit creatively sort of starved to be honest. I'm ready yeah. to get back to work so Hopefully that happens sooner rather than later. I love it. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me on. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Taryn. I'm so glad... We got to have that conversation, and I'm glad it was one of the few I got to do under safe circumstances in person. As said, we we were incredibly careful. We got a safe, clean, spacious space to talk in. We've both had to have tests for other things anyway. So, uh, yeah, it was nice and safe, and it was great to to touch that. I'm glad I got to have it in person because... We'd not met before, and he's someone who I'm a fan of, and we've gone back and forth, and something gets more cemented when you actually get to sit opposite someone and have a good chat. So, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. I'll be back next week with more wonderful guests, um, and I'll see you then. Ta-ta!